So contextually, Jesus had just entered into the city of Jerusalem, according to chapter 21, verse 5, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He did so in fulfillment of the Lord's word through the prophet Zechariah some five centuries earlier. And as Jesus entered the city to shouts and celebratory cries, as we read in verse 9 of chapter 21, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The text tells us in verse 10, 21 verse 10, that the whole city was stirred up. Meaning, the city quaked with excitement at the approach of Jesus Jerusalem was in an uproar as they heard the crowds in front of Jesus and behind Jesus shouting. And they all began considering the possibility that their hopes and their dreams and all of their longings for a restored and autonomous nation of Israel, such as they had experienced under the reign of King Solomon, might become a reality in short order. After arriving in the city... Mark tells us that Jesus, Mark 11, 11 tells us that Jesus went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you see, the clearing of the temple didn't take place or the cleansing of the temple didn't take place on the same day as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. It didn't occur immediately after the entry, but it took place on the next day after Jesus spent some time looking around, meaning he carefully inspected the temple complex. And as he deliberately and attentively examined the temple, what is it do you think that Jesus saw? Whatever it was that Jesus noted during this examination, it made him or caused him to return the next day during the bustling commerce in the temple to, in visual parable form, drive out those who were profaning the temple, those who were defiling and corrupting the worship of the temple, those who were hindering the people's ability to pray and to praise the Lord and to devote themselves to the Lord in the temple. <laughs> and as Jesus explored the temple grounds, he noted the booths set up throughout, stalls stocked with animals ready to sell, ready to sell to the throngs of people who were at that time making their annual Passover pilgrimage to the temple in, God, in obedience to God's command to observe this Passover celebration annually in the city of Jerusalem. And during this most holy week, the number of people in the city swelled to hundreds of thousands of worshipers, both Jew and Gentile. And never once to miss out on an opportunity for financial gain, the chief priests sold these spaces in the temple, usually to a family member or to a friend who'd returned the favor by adding some sort of kickback or adding some sort of percentage to, of the profits back to the religious leaders over and above the fee they charged for renting the space. And so Jesus, surveying the temple grounds, noted these booths, noted the tables that sold pigeons, noted the tables of money changers, but more importantly, he noted where these tables and these booths had been set up. The word here in 21 verse 12 that is used for temple doesn't refer to the inner temple. It refers to the outer courts, to the court of the Gentiles, the only place in the temple where non-Jews were permitted to approach God in worship. Now why is this such a big deal? It's because... As Christ declares when he quotes in verse 13 the prophet Isaiah when he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Matthew leaves off the ending of Isaiah's text there. Assuming that his Jewish audience would understand what he's getting at. But Mark, who's writing to a different audience, actually adds or keeps the original ending in. Listen to how Mark puts it in 11.17. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. 
As Isaiah 56, 7 itself reads, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Meaning, the temple of God was established by Himself to be a place where both God-fearing Jew and God-fearing Gentile could approach the Lord to pray and to worship Him without any hindrances, without any obstructions to the praise of His glorious name. And you see this right from the very beginning of the temple's establishment. After King Solomon oversaw the building and the completion of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem about a thousand years before this time, 1 Kings chapter 8 records his prayer of dedication. And there we read, um, you can open your Bible there if you want, we're going to spend a little bit of time working through 1 Kings chapter 8. There we read this, starting in verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And Solomon continued his prayer praising the Lord and exalting the Lord for fulfilling his promises to David. Promises that Solomon would be the one who built a house for the name of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem. And he continues praying, revealing to us the purpose for that temple. The goal for so great a complex in the holy city, Solomon says, is found in this prayer. Look at, starting in verse 28. O Lord my God, May your eyes be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And Solomon continues in verse 38. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So you see, in the first section of Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple, Solomon called upon the Lord to have, ask him to hear from heaven, to listen, and to be attentive to the prayers of his people, the people of Israel. As they either approach the temple to offer up sacrifices of praise and worship there at the temple, or as they approach the temple to worship and pray in its courts. And for many Israelites in the days of Solomon, this privilege and this blessing brought so much joy and comfort to their lives. In the same way that for many of us, approaching the house of the Lord, as in the church, to worship alongside your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord is an opportunity, it is a privilege, it is a moment, it is an event of such joy, of such a magnitude that you cannot leave it unchanged. And as they drew near to praise the Lord at the temple, we can imagine them, many of them, agreeing with and singing the songs of the sons of Korah who wrote in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sings for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Though, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You could imagine Israelites singing that song from the depths of their heart as they approached the Lord to worship him in his temple. This temple, the house of the Lord that Solomon built, was situated among, in the midst of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, those that the Lord called out from among all the nations of the earth to be for himself, according to Exodus chapter 19, a treasured possession among all peoples and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the duty of this nation of Israel was, according to the Lord through the prophet Solomon, to be a light for the nations that the Lord's salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Something Solomon understood as he continued his dedicatory prayer. You see, as Solomon goes on, we learn that the temple wasn't simply a place of prayer and worship for Israel alone, but for the nations also. That means us As Solomon prayed, starting in verse 41 of chapter 8, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So you see, Solomon's prayer of dedication petitioned the Lord to hear the prayers and to accept the worship of all who approached for worship whether they were Jewish, whether they were a foreigner. This is what the temple service ought to have been about. It was meant to be a place for wholehearted, single-minded, pure, holy, dedicated worship and praise to the Lord from all the peoples who came to know that the God of Israel, He alone, is the one true God over all. But it didn't take long, when you read the Old Testament, it didn't take long for Israel to profane that very temple with corrupt worship in the form of idolatry and xenophobia against the Gentiles. And this corruption of the temple actually culminated in the pinnacle of wickedness under King Manasseh, one of Judah's last kings before the nation went into exile. As 2 Kings 21 records, Manasseh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. Those are um, idols. As Ahab king of Israel had done, And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made and he set in the house of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And for all of these idolatries committed by Manasseh, for placing idols in the two courts of the temple, the same court that we find pigeons and money changers, for all of these idolatries, the Lord pronounced judgment upon Jerusalem, saying this in 2 Kings 21, 13, and 14. Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. And the Lord raised up and sent the Babylonians to be the rod of his judgment and wrath against the people of Judah. And they were carried off into exile. But not only that, 
Because their worship had become so profane and corrupt and defiled, Babylon also stripped and destroyed the temple that Israel had so profaned. This temple that Jesus enters on this day is the temple that had been rebuilt by the exiles after they had returned to Jerusalem and later on expanded into the magnificent structure that it had become after Herod took it upon himself to construct so awe-inspiring a complex to the glory of God's name? No, to the glory of his own. But now that the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem and they had this new temple, would they actually learn their lesson? Would the temple become what God had designed and meant it to be all along? In one sense, there would be no altars or no actual idols or no altars to Baal or no Asherahs in the temple any longer because Israel, when they returned, put all of those things aside. But would the nation then take the next step and actually see to it that the temple of the Lord becomes a place where both Jew and Gentile can approach the Lord to pray and to worship without any obstacles or any hindrances put in their way? Would they see to it that the house of the Lord becomes a house of prayer for all the nations? Well, based on Jesus' response to what he saw happening in the temple, the answer seems to be a resounding no. As he inspected the temple, Jesus took note of all the abuses, all the disobedience, all the ways in which those who oversaw the temple services acted actually in direct opposition to the word of God and the intention of God for his temple. And Jesus, knowing that his father's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations, noticed that all the tables for money changing, along with all the booths for selling pigeons, they were set up in the most prominent and most accessible places in the outer court, in the court of the Gentiles, the very place for the nations to approach the Lord to offer up prayers and praise. And what's more, the blind and the lame, they all sat far off, ignored and obstructed from the approach to the Lord in prayer. Now, if we take a step back, to be fair, the buying and selling of these sacrificial animals, it actually started out with the best of intentions. You see, the week of Passover saw people coming from all over the Roman Empire, journeying towards Jerusalem. Some of them came from so far away that it didn't make sense to lug their live animals and their offerings with them all that way. What happens if those animals die on the way? All of a sudden they're defiled and they're, they're disqualified from actually going and performing the sacrifices. And so originally, these stalls and these booths and these seats were situated just outside the temple where no one might be distracted by the general commotion that comes with marketplace-style commerce. And they actually provided a welcome service for weary travelers. But over time, these booths were moved from just outside the temple where they created a log jam at the entrance to the inside where they became major distractions for the Gentiles who came seeking to petition the Lord. They didn't move these into the places where the Jews went to worship. They moved them into the places where the Gentiles worship. Now, if I could try to make an analogy to bring it to our own day, I want you to imagine. Imagine that this place was the only place in all of Ontario where people could come to approach the Lord in prayer. People would have to travel from all over to come here. And the leadership of this house declared that everyone who is bald must not enter the sanctuary. The sanctuary, this room, is reserved for those with hair. Flowing locks like his. Well, for us bald heads, we were permitted to pray and worship over there in the fireside room just outside the sanctuary. Most of us might get a little bit agitated by that, but some of us would say, that's okay, as long as I can go to the, the, the building and worship the Lord, I'm good. And so to the fireside room, I go. <clears throat> but when we get there, Anything that might be required or desired or wanted for people to worship in the church was sold in booths that had been set up throughout the room. You could go into that room and you could purchase your $100 calfskin Bibles. 
your Bible verse coffee mugs and pens, your nativity scenes and figurines, your t-shirts with awesome Christian slogans on them, your silk ties with Bible verses on them, your keychains with praying hands engraved upon them, Bible bookmarks, Bible study dry pencils, gel highlighters, and the Bible tabs so that you could put them all through your Bible so you're not embarrassed at your inability to find Habakkuk when the pastor says, open your Bibles to Habakkuk. You can find all of that. And as us bald people enter into this room to pray, we enter to the loud and distracting sounds of commerce and we are bumped up against by those who have hair trying to purchase everything they require for worship in the sanctuary. How difficult would that make it for the hairless to worship in the fireside room? Quite difficult, right? And so Jesus, seeing what the religious leaders had done in the temple, how they'd made it next to impossible for the Gentiles to pray and to worship in the only place in the temple set aside for them to do so, came to the temple the next day, and in verse 12, look at it, entered the temple and drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. That's an interesting text, isn't it? Because if you recall what the Israelites were expecting from Messiah and what Messiah actually does when he gets to the temple, they're two totally different things. The Israelite crowds, along with the religious leaders, are all waiting for Messiah to come and expecting him to arrive at the temple, gathering up an army of the faithful to drive out the Romans. But here we are, watching Jesus do the exact opposite. Here we are, watching Jesus arrive at the temple to drive them out. To drive the Jewish religious leaders out. To drive their system out their machine, their corrupt worship, out. He drove out the hypocrites. He drove out the corrupt. He drove out the robbers, as we'll see in verse 13. He drove out those who interfered with and placed obstacles in the way of true, wholehearted, biblically rooted worship. It's as if Jesus was declaring to them and to all of us in visual form that as long as my people's worship is corrupt and blasphemous and impure, as long as my house is led by corrupt religious leaders, as long as my house is not the house of prayer that it is designed and meant to be, then nothing else in Israel can be fixed or addressed. Proper worship is the key. Proper worship is the foundation. It is the focus. And in driving out the buyers and the sellers, in overturning the money changers' tables and the seats of those who sold pigeons, Jesus here displayed the displeasure of God in their false, wicked, and profane religious practices. Their distorted, their defiled, and their contaminated worship. All of which must be driven out of the temple and the house of the Lord in order to make way for true, obedient worship. And you see, this is how serious our Lord Jesus was, how serious our God is about true worship. The word, Matthew tells us here, that Jesus drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. The word is a strong word. It means he expelled them. It means he forced them out. And the word includes and carries with it the sense of even physical force. You see the zeal of Christ for his Father's house. All that violates the will of God, the command of God, the intention of God, all that hinders the true worship of God from his people must be forcefully driven out of his house. That's one side of what's happening here. We've now noted the positioning and the placement of the buyers and sellers in the court of the Gentiles, and in so doing, the hindering of their worship to the Lord. But there's another factor at play in Christ's overturning of the tables and seats as well. You see, these booths set up in the court of the Gentiles brought in great financial gain for the temple. 
And as we all know, when greedy humanity sees an opportunity for increased riches, more often than not, their corrupt hearts take over as it had for the religious leaders in these days. I want you to notice, Jesus overturned what? The seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, why point that out? Why highlight pigeon sellers? There were other booths in the court. There were courts, booths selling bulls and booths selling lambs. And he doesn't turn them over, but he heads directly for the tables with the pigeons on them. In the book of Leviticus, the Lord describes, Moses describes the establishment of the sacrificial system. The very same system that was still in effect and still practiced at the temple in the day of Jesus. And when the Lord instituted these sacrifices, He commanded that all the people of Israel bring their offerings to Him at the temple. And these offerings were to be from A, the livestock, in the form of an unblemished bull, or B, from the flock in the form of an unblemished lamb or goat, or C, from an offering of the birds in the form of turtle doves or pigeons. Now, what was the reason for the including of birds here? The reason for birds being included as an acceptable sacrifice is that the Lord is gracious. He did this to ensure that no one, based on their financial status, no one who lacked the means to bring a bull or a lamb or a goat, which were very costly, would be expelled from or unable to or excluded from obedience to the Lord's command to offer up sacrifices of praise. We read it, in exam, uh, for example, in Leviticus 5, verses 6 and 7. Listen. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sins that he has committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. See, the Lord's inclusion of pigeons and turtle doves as, as acceptable sacrifices for those who could not afford bulls or goats ensured that the poor could also make offerings to the Lord shoulder to shoulder with the rich who could afford to bring bulls and goats. And whether one was poor, offering up pigeons, or rich, offering up bulls, the result was the same. Atonement made for the one with faith in the Lord. But now, here and this day, these pigeon sellers in the temple sabotage this gracious provision of the Lord for the poor by charging extortion-level prices for these sacrificial pigeons in the temple. The estimates that I read varied greatly, but it was from around 10 to 75 times their worth. One can understand now why these booths were moved into the temple, right? You and I all know what it's like to buy popcorn at the movie theater, right? I can go to Costco and buy a 20-pack of Redenbacher movie-style popcorn for $9.99. But then I'm charged, what is it now, $30 for one bag of popcorn at the theater. Humanity hasn't changed. Where we see the opportunity for greedy gain, we take it. And it's everywhere, right? Go to a baseball game and buy a hot dog. Go to Canada's Wonderland and buy a funnel cake. Be prepared to empty your wallet because the same hot dog in the ball diamond and the same funnel cake in Canada's Wonderland is what, 10 to 75 times higher? Maybe not that high, but it feels like it. And so you might think then, well, why wouldn't the people just bring their own pigeons then? I mean, it can't be that hard to bring a little crate with some pigeons in it. Well, not only were the priests um, in charge of overseeing the worship, but they were also in charge of inspecting all of the sacrificial animals that are brought to the temple for blemishes and imperfections. 
Can you see the problem here? Can you see how this system can be abused? The ones greedy for gain are the ones who control which animals can be offered and which can't. You can see it, right? Well, I know you brought that pigeon from far away, but if you look right here, it's missing a feather or it's got a little bump right here. So you can't use it. But if you go over there, there's a booth with pre-inspected birds already pre-qualified and acceptable for sacrifice for, own, for the, the low, low price of 75 times their worth. And along with the seats of those selling pigeons, notice that Jesus also overturned the tables of the money changers in verse 12. The Old Testament prescribed only Jewish currency for temple offerings. So foreign currency was forbidden. And again, the opportunity for financial windfall proved to be too much for the religious leaders. And so those money changers set up tables to exchange a pilgrim's foreign coinage to the Jewish shekel for a fee, of course. What a system, right? What a system. The temple's operation in the day of Christ in no way reflected the purpose of God for that temple. The worship of God by the peoples of all nations was corrupted and it was hindered by the very people that the Lord had called to protect it. And if there's one thing we know from God's revelation to us in Scripture, it's that He takes the worship of His glorious and holy and exalted name with the utmost seriousness and the utmost gravity. And so Jesus said to them, after having turned over the seats and the tables, as He is driving them out, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now the text that Jesus quotes here is found in Isaiah chapter 56. And when you turn to Isaiah 56 and you read the words in their context, it is an announcement of the Lord of the day when those who are once excluded and hindered from worshiping at the temple will be welcomed with open arms by the Lord. Read it, Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and listen, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The chief priests and the scribes would have been very familiar with this text, with texts like these. And yet, here they are doing everything in their power to keep the temple, the house of the Lord, from being exactly what the Lord said it ought to be. Here they are doing all they can to keep the temple from being a house of prayer for all the peoples, for the nations, and for the Gentiles. By placing commerce in the court of the Gentiles, the religious leaders robbed them of the blessing of unhindered prayer in the house of God. These religious leaders blatantly violated and sought to frustrate one of the Lord's greatest and most gracious promises, that the nations will come to Him and He will gather them in, making them joyful in His house of prayer. And then as we read the very next verse, Isaiah 56, verse 8, the text immediately after Christ's quotation, we read that the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will, yet gather, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. Guess what? That includes you. That includes me. That includes all of us who are not ethnically Jewish, who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone this morning. Now I want you to see also 
how Jesus describes the actions of the religious leaders in Israel. While the temple of the Lord ought to have been a house of prayer for all the peoples, the actions of the temple leadership turned it into, and look at the words of Jesus here in verse 13, a den of robbers. A den of robbers. They turned it into a den first off. This word den means a hideout, a cave, a protected place, a place where these robbers can be safe from consequence. And the word for robbers here refers to bandits and thieves, even worse, insurrectionists. One commentator notes that the best modern word that we can use to help us capture the force of this word for robbers here is the word terrorist. You have made the temple of God into a hideout for terrorists. Let that sink in for a second. The idea being that to prevent God-fearing peoples from worshiping Him in spirit and in truth in His house with His people is insurrection and terrorism against the plan of God and the people of God. It is to commit a sort of spiritual terrorism against God's people. Can you feel that? Can you feel the weight of that idea? It's a vivid and strong word. The leaders of the temple committed insurrection against God and terrorism against the Gentiles by robbing them financially in the extorting prices of the pigeons for sacrifice and in obstructing the Gentiles from approaching the Lord in prayer and petition and worship. And what's worse, what's worse is they did it all out in the open without any shame. You see, the temple truly had, by this point, become a hideout for bandits, a place where false and rebellious leaders hid but operated with, without, with impunity, without consequence or repercussions against the plan of God for the temple. The application to the house of God today is pretty obvious, isn't it? The visible church, in many ways, today... The house of the Lord in our day has, many, has become a hideout and a cave for spiritual bandits and spiritual terrorists to operate with freedom from consequence as they blaspheme the Lord within the community, as they blaspheme the character of God, the attributes of God, the holiness of God in the hearing of peoples who would gather to worship His name. And what's more, when the faithful people of God those who are committed to pure, unadulterated, uncorrupted worship of the Lord, call these spiritual insurrectionists out. When those who desire an unhindered court of the Gentiles for people to worship overturn the tables and throw off the seats and drive out the teachings and the leaven and the books and the songs and the rest of these spiritual terrorists within God's church, they are met oftentimes with culturally conditioned protests like, well, that's not nice. That's not Christ-like. You're a little too dogmatic about this. Or, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. Always in the King James, right? We always remember that in the King James. The actions of Christ toward those who pollute the worship of the Lord is informative here in our text. And I've heard, if you have listened to the news or watched the news over the last decades, you have heard and seen a number of terrible terrorist attacks occur all over the world. I've heard and read stories of car bombs, cars parked at curbs in busy places filled with explosives that explode and kill people. I've heard of people who put on vests and they run into buildings or crowded spaces and vests are filled with explosives and they blow them up and they kill people. These are all tragic and awful and horrific events. And Jesus here, 
reveals to us that the spiritual equivalent to such atrocious, outrageous, and barbarous behavior as those attacks is turning the house of God into a den of robbers. Of turning the house of God into a place where heretics and prosperity gospel peddlers and outlandish charismaniacs and false doctrine is permitted rather than driven out rather than being overturned. When such spiritual terrorism infects the church, when cultural capitulation to sexual immorality, challenges to the authority of Scripture, songs promoting heretical ideas that are derived from culture and not Scripture, infect the church, it is the duty, the responsibility, the task of the church and its spiritual leaders to identify it, condemn it, and drive out that robbery for the sake of our unhindered worship, for the sake of saints being able to approach and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I mean, all you have to do is go and read the Old Testament to note just how careful God is, or God demands that we be in His worship. You read through Deuteronomy. I used a purple marker as I was reading, and I just underlined all the times when the Lord says, be careful. Be careful to do what I've commanded you. Be careful. It's over, and it's over, and it's over again. God commands his people to be careful in their worship. When Bezalel and Aholiab are commissioned to make the, the utensils for the tabernacle, God didn't say, just make them however you please. God set out exacting measurements for every single thing. Every utensil, every fork, every bowl, everything was to be designed and created and engraved in the exacting standards and description of the Lord. And then we got the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, who took it upon themselves to bring an offering of incense to the Lord that the Lord had not authorized them to bring. They thought, you know what? The Lord, he's not going to be really that serious, right? He's not that exacting, right? I mean, we're priests. We're sons of Aaron. We can take it upon ourselves to bring offerings that maybe the Lord hasn't called for us to bring. And they bring it, and do you know what the Lord does to them? He puts them both to death. The Lord is serious about the purity of his worship. One example, of the pernicious, one example of one pernicious error that sneaks its way into Christian books and songs and has infected the actual proclamation of the gospel is that of our cultural obsession with self-love. You hear it in every commercial, in every song, everywhere, right? Think about it. Because I, I listen now and I hear it all the time. Many well-meaning people will bring the gospel to others like this. Do you know that God created you in his own image? You are so valuable. And because you are so valuable, because you are worth so much, God sent his son to save you. Now, some of us in here might think, wow, that sounds great. Nothing wrong with that. This is actually the anti-gospel. Because the very opposite is true. It's not because you and I are so valuable. It's not because you and I are worth so much that God sent His Son to seek us and to save us. The gospel is this, that we had become worthless, according to Romans chapter 3. We had become sinners, unworthy, undeserving of so great an act of love as that which God has given to us. It's not because you're worthy or you're good, that God sent His Son. It's because He is wonderful and He is good and He is love and He is gracious and He is awesome. That's the gospel. You and I didn't deserve it. But He's so amazing. He ransomed our souls from the penalty and wrath that we deserved. You see, the gospel is about God's worth, not yours, not mine. The gospel points us to God's infinite value, not yours, not mine. Now that might seem like a minute or a small distinction, but it isn't. Such things have far-reaching consequences when we allow cultural leaven to infect the house of God without overturning the tables and driving it out. 
in a world where the great sin is to be certain about anything, those with certainty about what God's Word says and commands, and in that certainty, without apology, turn over the tables of falsehood, turn over the tables of heresy, and drive out sinful capitulation in the house of God, guess what? In the visible church, these are going to be your enemy number ones. To many of the insurrectionists and terrorists in the visible church, along with the world at large, that is doing all it can to suppress the truth of God. False doctrine, impure worship. Listen to me. These are vest bombs exploding in the midst of, uh, of God's people, hurting, harming, and leaving their spiritual bodies laying on the ground. And this phrase, den of robbers, it's actually found in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Contextually, the words spoken before verse 11 speak to the Hebrew peoples who had committed all sorts of wicked sins and evil, but who still feigned respect and reverence for the temple and its ceremonies. The prophetic word came to those who thought, I can live however I want to live because the temple exists in our midst. And so the Lord warned in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, the idolatrous people of Judah at this time perverted the worship of God by thinking, I can live however I want to live so long as I offer up the prescribed sacrifices at the temple, something that the Lord condemns in Jeremiah chapter 7, 10, 7 verses 9 and 10. The Lord said, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. This is the inhabitants of Judah assume that the mere presence of the temple in Jerusalem was enough to ensure their forgiveness and right standing before God. The equivalent for us today might be... <coughs> Those who profess Jesus with their lips, who live lives of wicked sin with no care or concern for growth in and knowledge of the truth of the Lord, they busy themselves with anything else other than God's word and growth up into the knowledge and image and likeness of Jesus Christ, and then they think it atonement enough to attend church on Sunday morning, and even then on Sunday morning, they're not listening. Such a mindset, along with the refusal to drive out spiritual insurrection with no concern for being a place where the Lord is worshipped, exalted, petitioned in spirit and truth, makes such a house a den of robbers. A hideout for the wicked. And if you are one who lives in sin all week long with little concern or regard about it and think that by attending church on Sunday morning that you somehow make up for it, you are dead wrong. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. If the Holy Spirit truly does live in you because you have turned to Jesus in faith, you will be laboring to put to death what is earthly in you. You will be growing in the fruit of righteousness and repentance, all of which are signs of the Spirit in you. And if you don't really care about any of this, know this. You can fool others. You can fool me. But you cannot fool the Lord. He sees it. That's what Jeremiah 7.11 says. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. In other words, know this. The hypocrites... The hinderers, the phony worshipers, the spiritual terrorists, they will all be driven out when Jesus returns. And until then, we are called to do our best for the sake of God's glory to drive out and overturn corrupt and profane worship, to create a place, a community, a, a gathering of saints that for those who truly seek the Lord so they can do so without any hindrance or obstruction. And look, in 21 verse 14, immediately after Jesus cleared out the false worship and the corrupt worship, look what happens. No sooner did he drive out 
the, ta- the, the buyers and the sellers and overturned the tables, immediately the blind and the lame came to him. It's almost like once those things were cleared out, those people on the fringes could now come in. And isn't that the point? Jesus pushed out corruption for the moment at least. The temple became... For the, and in this, in this moment, the temple did become the house of prayer for the nations as the blind and the lame, those on the margins, those excluded from worship, made their way to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus healed them. Jesus made them whole. Jesus made whole the outsider who truly came to worship God in truth and drove out the insider who had turned the temple into the den of robbers. Jesus healed them that the religious leaders had no time for, those that the religious leaders had relegated into the sidelines. Jesus loved and healed those that the corrupt leaders had labored to exclude. And in this picture, again, you see how far away from its purpose the temple had become. And as a result, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this prophetic word came to pass in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem, captured it, drove the Jews out of the city, and destroyed the temple along with everything in the city. And now, in this, the church age, we as Christ's people represent the household of God. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the Apostle Paul calls the church the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. In conclusion, you and I, this body, is called to ensure that we do not allow this to become a den of robbers. This body is called to open wide the gates by going out into the world to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. We are called to protect the flock of God from wolves who would seek to devour the sheep by driving them out. We are called to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are called to make room for any and all who wish to worship our precious Lord in spirit and in truth while again driving out any and all things that might corrupt, profane, or hinder such God-glorifying worship. And the reason we do this is for the sake of his people and for the exaltation of his name. Father, we thank you, and we honor you, and we praise you. And when we read and study your word, we know, Lord, that you are a holy God. You are not just a holy God, but you are a holy, holy, holy God. You take the worship of your name seriously and you take the unhindered worship of your name by peoples from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every language seriously. So I pray that we would learn from the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and we would take seriously the necessity to drive out and to overturn anything that might, whether quickly or over time, turn this house, this community, into a den of robbers. We pray that this place would always be committed to the glory of your name, to the pure, unadulterated worship of your name through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. May this always be the case again for the sake of your people and for the glory of your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.